I think we have been very relaxed about it. There's a lot of venues that aren't doing the right thing. I see it day in and day out. Cafes that I've seen uh, really just jamming them in, and especially uh, in, in areas where we've had some we've had some clusters. It just seems like they're not paying attention, which is disappointing. I'm Danny Valant, and this is Dirty Linen the podcast that takes the issues the hospitality industry finds hard to air in public and shakes them all about. On Dirty Linen this week, we're talking about temporary visa holders in hospitality. Uh, We've heard from people who are at the front line, they're on temporary visas themselves. Uh, And I wanted to talk to a restaurateur who's really passionate about this issue. So I've hit up Attila Yilmaz from Passar Food Collective in Sydney. Attila, we've we're Facebook mates. Um, I don't think we've ever actually been in a room together, although I hope when we are in a room together, it's because I'm eating your food. Um, but I know just from yeah, chatting to you and listening to what you were saying on Deep in the Weeds, my brother podcast, that you were, employ a lot of temporary visa holders and you've got a lot to say about the way that the industry works in and around them. Yeah, I do. Thanks, Danny. And uh, you know, I also hope that when we do meet, it's... Uh, in a dining room of some sort, um, yeah, whether it's mine or another. <laughs> I know. I don't care. Um, yeah. But, yeah, <laughs> it's, I feel like I know, really, know you really well because I follow you religiously and I've been um, you know, listening to the podcast and I've been following your your campaign through social media and, um, and, and in the papers as well. And, um, look, hats off to you. Thank you so much for what you're trying to do for all the visa holders and the, the, the restaurant owners um, and hospitality, people who really depend on, on these people for our livelihoods. Yeah, I mean, no worries. And the reason, I mean, it's a social justice issue for one, but I also love restaurants so much and want to go back to them so badly that uh, it seems there's a really clear connection between my passion for restaurants and my work for temporary visa holders because we just need them to run our Australian restaurants, don't we? Well, well, we do, uh, you know, and I think Australians in general love restaurants. I mean, just look at us when we got came out of lockdown. It went bananas. Like people just could not wait to get into their local favourite and get out and dine again. Um, and, you know, the general feedback was, yeah, your takeaway was great, but it's so good to be back in the dining room. Um, you know, and that's, that's what restaurants are they're about. And, you know, people, you hear it time and time over and over again in, with your, your guest speakers and your podcast. It, it's about the experience. It's, 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 it's everything encompassed. It's not just about the food. But, yeah, these temporary visa holders are, are the lifeblood of our industry. Um, and, and without them, we wouldn't we wouldn't have the industry that we have. We would not have the business we have. I would not have my my restaurant. Um, I would not have a livelihood. I would not be able to provide for my family, um, and I would not have been able to do the things I've been able to do in the last you know six years I've been in this industry. And um, you know, I haven't been in it very long. Um, you know, this this is my second, third, fourth vocation, wherever it is in my lifetime, but. Um, you know, I'm, I'm definitely passionate about it, but I'm, I'm also passionate about the people that work for me or work with me. Tell me why that is. Like why do you depend on these guys so much? To be honest, it, it's not for lack of trying to, to hire locals. And when, you know, when we put the when – we, when we do advertise and I, I do try to recruit, um, 
Look, I'll just come out and say it. The industry is pretty pretentious. It really is. Um, and we just lack a lot of industry professionals. And, and understandably, the industry professionals are going to gravitate more to the, the city-bound diners, the eastern suburbs here in Sydney, kind of your more popular, your more trendy places. Um, you know, we're in Canterbury. We're on the fringes of the inner west. We're a 12-minute drive from the city. It's not it's not that far away. <laughs> it's not the outback. No, it's not. But, you know, the, when, when, when I approach people in industry, when I've been to industry events before, they go, oh, yeah, bizarre. I've heard of that. Where's that again? Oh, Canterbury. Oh, and they're turning their back and walking away from me. Oh. It's like um, uh, I swear it's happened. And I'm like, you know, what the fuck? Your restaurant just went bust a few weeks ago and you're walking away from me? Like, uh you know, so there's this, there's this pretentiousness in the industry, and it's it's really hard to get people to come out and work in the city, uh, you know, in in the fringes and in the in the suburbs. Um, I guess there's this, this stigma that we're just not considered legit. Um, you know, I've spoken to chefs that I've said to them, "Why don't you open a restaurant in the suburbs?" Like, you know, we're thriving. We're doing. Oh no, I really want to open the city. I really, you know, just don't feel like you've made it until you you're in the city. Um, but yeah, I mean, the only people that are applying for these jobs in general are foreign workers. Those are our students, our visa holders. Um, As you said, you ran an ad uh, uh, not so long ago, 200 people applied and not one was an Australian. Am I remembering that right? Uh, 430 was the last count. So, yeah, when I put that last post up. So, at last count, it was 430. I think in there, there were four Australians or permanent residents um, that I filtered through, uh, were not did that didn't have the relevant experience, but generally most of them were our visa holders and students um, or travellers. That is unbelievable. Uh, so it, it's not as um, but then there's problems with employing international students, aren't there? Like you can't you can't. You, I mean. Because of their work restrictions, you, you don't want to staff your restaurant just with international students, right? Well, no. Well, it's not. Well, you can't if you're doing things legit. And let's let's be honest. A lot of these internationals that have been working, they work. They can only work twenty hours. No one can survive on twenty hours a week work in this country. And I, I you know. Maybe it's not spoken of, but a lot of these kids that are out here studying, they're working 20 hours on the books and they're working 20 hours off the books somewhere else. And, and that's just the reality of the situation. But the problem is now that also is cash has dried up. We're, a, we're a, virtually a cashless economy. I'm down to, I think, 6 to 8% cash transactions in a week now, whereas two years ago we would have been sitting around six, you know, 45 almost 50% cash coming through the business. Now, I spoke, I've spoken to a lot of these students. A lot of my guys that have been working for me, they've been able to do the 40 hours during the pandemic. But now we're at a situation where I've got to cut them back because we do everything legit. We, everything's on the books. Everything's taxed. They're paid above award, um, super, everything. We do everything right. And it's just too high risk now to then go, right, yeah, we can put you 20 hours on the books and then, you know, we'll pay your cash for the other 20 hours, which is, to be honest, is when they get rorted as well from a lot of businesses because they take advantage of that. Yeah, and they don't get the correct hourly rate. And um, No. 
no, I've had guys come work for me. They've been washing dishes for twelve dollars an hour, you know, um, or, or waiting tables for thirteen, fourteen dollars an hour, working, you know. And it's just, I mean, that's just a cruel amount of money to pay, um, and that actually really makes me angry. And um, I've managed actually with a couple of those that were getting scammed to bring them on and give them more hours and, and pay them a better wage. So, you know, whereas they were working two jobs to make the one amount. They're working twenty hours and getting yeah you know, the same amount of money. So, as a as a business owner, what are the challenges when you can own if you're doing everything legit and you're only able to employ an international student for twenty hours a week or forty hours a fortnight is what they're technically allowed to work. So, what are some of the challenges that that throws up for your business in terms of continuity and training? Well, um, it's it, it, it's expensive to train people because um, time is money. Uh, not only that, you've got so many more people on the payroll, so much more to process, so many more personalities to deal with, so many more issues to deal with. And, you know, I'm a one-man operation. I, I can't speak for the larger restaurant groups, but – and we're a fairly busy restaurant, but I do everything from running the pass, reservations, accounts, maintenance, you name it, I'm across everything. I'm even hosting while I'm running the pass um, <laughs> wow. at the moment because I can't find a restaurant manager. And this hasn't been just during this pandemic. It's been for a while. But what it means to me is that I've got to increase my team and the numbers in my team, which means I've got to spend more time training people. Um, but also then trying to retain those people is really, really difficult because you know, at 20 hours a week, and especially when you hit something like a pandemic, as soon as your hours start to drop off or your clientele starts to drop, you need to start dropping team members and you can lose them fairly quickly. Um, and, and that's been a huge, huge issue is re- retention, um, retaining these guys, especially in the lean periods. It's really, really hard. You talk about um, the pretentiousness that you point to where there's this, you know, bias towards the inner city. But do you think, I mean, you'd also, there are, there are Australian kids living in Canterbury. Like, why do you think they aren't applying for part-time jobs with you? Uh, you know, I, I've, I've been at that location now in Canterbury for almost seven years. It started as a food truck pop-up and then it evolved into a restaurant. My, my The first team I had there with Pizarre, I had the same solid team for about almost three and a half to four years. And there were a lot of local kids that were either customers that would come in with their parents and apply to 16, 17-year-olds and then worked on for three, four years. Um, and, and the original team. Um, and, you know, it comes a time where everyone needs to move on. And actually, I was quite frank with a lot of these kids. If you're here after three or four years, there's serious issues with what you're, you're studying. You need to you know, have a good hard look at yourself and, and move on and do something else because um, it's too long to be in one in one spot or, you know, um, you, you won't grow. But, you know, the last two years have just been – and it's not just me. It's just been a battle to recruit and to, to get quality hospitality staff, like people who want to do it for a living. They want this to be their career. They want it to be their livelihood. Um, and we do have a lot of locals around the area. I, I'm a local. I live locally. Um, my kids go to the local school. I know of a lot of local kids in the area, but they all want to work for the big names. They all want to work for the Maryvales. They want to all go work in the city. They, you know, at the the trendy spots. Um, 
you know, and they attract that that group of people. Um, and they hoover them all up. I mean, it's really hard to compete. Um, you know, it's all about it's all about the gram now, isn't it? Where you work, who you work for, um, where you're being seen, who you're hanging out with. Um, so it's. Yeah, that you know, the, the general consensus, and I've asked some kids in the area too. They'll catch trains, buses, whatever it is, to get into the city to go and work for less than I'll pay an hour, um, just because it's trendy. I think that's odd. I mean, we we spoke to um to a, a French uh, restaurant manager, Clément de Marais, on the podcast this week as well, and he spoke about a very different culture of hospitality that he sees in, in Europe where it's a, it's a legitimate career, it's something that, uh, you know, every, every everyone would be proud of their son or daughter who is, you know, going into uh, a professional hospitality life. Uh, do you think Australia is a little bit different in that regard? Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, I remember a time when it was... It, it, you know, it. Um, I mean, I'm I'm 46 years old, but I do remember when, if you worked in a restaurant and you were a waiter, for example, um, Melbourne's Ligon Street in in the days when it was just pumping, um, Norton Street, Leichhardt here in, in in Sydney, you know, where people were professional wait staff, and they were proud to say, and they were proud to do that job. It wasn't an in between job. This here, hospitality is something that you do, especially front of house is something you do in between jobs or on your way to doing something else. Um, and I, people aren't proud to say that they're a, they're a server, they're a waiter, they're a, um, you know, that they work in a restaurant. It's like, oh, I'm just working in a restaurant at the moment, and you know, before I do this. Um, and, yeah, it's it's definitely culturally different. It, it's, I don't know, there's been a big, big shift I've seen in the last probably, you know, three, four years in, in the attitudes of, 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 of think, I think of the younger generation coming through as well as to what they should and shouldn't be doing um, or what they – there's a lot of self-entitlement, let me put it that way. And I saw that a lot in the police too. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I was in the police for 12 years and one of my major jobs there was as a field training officer training the new recruits out of the academy. And over those 12 years – I saw the calibre and the quality of police and attitudes changing. And, and most didn't last. Uh, you know, they, it was time for them to move on. But it's a very much a that's not my job, I'm not paid to do that kind of mentality, um, which comes across a lot, especially with some of the newer ones that we, we do meet. It's, you know, um, I'm a waiter. I'm not a you know. You ask them to wash some glasses, and you know, the comeback will be no. I'm I'm a waiter. I'm not a glass washer. Well, it's like it's all part of the job. It's you know little things like that. Mm. I mean, you really have chosen hospitality. You mentioned that you were in the police force. Can you just give us the little potted history of of Attila's journey? Um, your hospitality is in my blood. My dad came to this country. Um, yeah, the, the same old story, virtually nothing in his pocket, self-taught cook, opened up cafe la- coffee lounges and then in the end, uh, coffee lounge and in the end was end up in the restaurant game. Um, uh, and, you know, that was in my blood from a very uh, from, from a very young age. And for me, cooking and making people happy and, and it was just something I, I was grew, grew up with and I loved and um, – you know, as a 24-year-old when I joined the police, um, I continued to 
to cook and learn and just I'm self-taught, just travel. I'd take annual leave. I'd go work in a restaurant as a kitchen hand and just, you know, pick up little bits and pieces, whether it be a Pakistani restaurant, Italian restaurant, whatever it was, um, and, and travel. So, you know, 12 years in the police, uh, the, glass got, the glass got a little bit too full, as I like to say, and it started to spill over. It was, it was time for me to go. But I also, you know, when I left, I left with a conscious decision of, of you know, kind of where I knew I would go and what I, would, what I wanted to do. Um, I never thought I'd end up back in a, owning a restaurant. That wasn't my goal. Uh, my goal was just to own a food truck and, you know, go and activate spaces that people feel like they can't go to or feel unsafe being in at night time. And, you know, it just evolved into what it is today. So it was about creating community spaces. I suppose it's so much of, yeah, there's, there's, I guess, the law enforcement side of policing and there's also the community engagement, community building, connection creating side of policing. Yeah, 100%. I was very much from the old school you know, I was very much the sort of person that got out of the police car and walked around and met the local stakeholders, uh, you know, the shop um, keepers, the shop owners, because they provided us with the intelligence and, and you know, building trust with them was like the old school days of the police. You know, you, you got to know your local policemen and the more you got to know them, the more you trusted them and the more you information and, and you more you could rely on those people. Um, you know, and for me, I wanted to still give back in some sort of way if I couldn't be a policeman anymore, what else could I do? Could I provide a, a blanket of safety in the middle of the night, providing awesome food and a great atmosphere in a space, you know, that ordinarily people would avoid? Um, so that was kind of my motivation behind it and here I am today. <laughs> <laughs> and do you feel like um, Pazar plays that role in Canterbury? It's, is it a gathering place or in normal times at least? Yeah. I mean, when I opened, decided to open in Canterbury, everyone said, oh, is you know, Yilmaz, he's lost it. He's absolutely lost the plot. Like, you know, and I used to joke, I've got, I'm crazy, I'm significant to prove it. But it was, you know, Canterbury was a wasteland. It's just a strip of vacant for lease um, storefronts. Um, there's really not much going on around there. And, you know, when I did it, it was just meant to be a pop-up um and a test out for whether people would travel to my food truck to eat my food before i even had a food truck and you know we we blacked out the windows and um just promoted it on social media and lo and behold people were coming from all over sydney and it just it just gained a, a bit of a cult following from there um and 80 percent of my business travels to the area uh travels to canterbury to eat and most of my customers come from the eastern suburbs North Shore and the South. Twenty percent of my business is, is local. Um, well, there you go. They're the, they're not the pretentious ones. People are get, no. getting taking that massive odyssey twelve minutes from the city to uh, to because they love what you're doing. To be honest, if I had a dollar for every time someone said, "Oh, why don't you open up in the eastern suburbs?" or "You should we should come over to the eastern suburbs," I'd be a very rich man. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I've been blessed that we've had a really good team. I mean, we've had people from Melbourne coming in, walking to the restaurant with their carry-on. Ah. Specifically flying up for the overnight to eat, stay at a hotel and fly back the next day, um, you know, which is humbling and it's nice uh, and kind of weird all at the same time. So it's um, – yeah, and it's a wonderful feeling and 
but the last the last eighteen months has been a, it's, has been a slog. It's been tough, and I think that's everyone in the industry. We're really, really feeling it. It's so. I mean, it already was a hard slog and now we're in a pandemic and now Sydney seems to be in, I don't know, poised on a precipice. Um, what's what's this week, what's this past week been like to be a, a restaurateur in Sydney? Oh, wow, Danny. I, seriously, I, I think I'm spending probably 70% of my time listening to the news, waiting to hear of, you know, the, the latest cluster, which restaurant's being shut down, which area's been affected. Um you know, speaking on the socials with other restaurant owners and stuff, the the last two, with the last week and a half especially, we've taken a huge hit um, here. I lost sixty percent of my reservations within three days of the clusters. Um, you know, starting to grow last week, we were um, takeaways dropped ninety percent. Um, you know, I think this time around, as I, to be honest, the pandemic hasn't worried me so much um not having the clientele hasn't worried my biggest stress has been staff and and staffing issues and being able to you know to to staff the restaurant properly um and also to provide for 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 them as well but this time round, with this lockdown which i've kind of been prepared for if we do get locked down it feels worse and, you know, looking at what happened in Melbourne, when you start to shut down suburban areas and targeting certain suburbs and naming localities, it immediately, for me, is a bit of a death sentence as far as business is concerned because 80% of my business travels to where I am. And if my area is named as a cluster, um, then they're not coming. <laughs> they're, they won't be coming for takeaway and they won't be coming to dine in. So they're... All, that's worrying me a little bit you know looking at our our reservations are cancelling at the moment more than they you know more than being replaced with bookings which has never happened so yeah it, it is worrying um, because we don't have job keeper uh, we don't have any rental assistance as such as yet um, I'm pretty proud to say I've managed to to keep it profit uh, at least break even after the first two, three weeks um, and, you know, and then, uh, yeah, run at a small profit. Um, but that's not including what we owe to the tax department later on. Um, but, we, you know, it's it's worrying. It is. It's definitely feels different, you know, this time around. Obviously in Melbourne we're in the thick of it and we're all wearing masks and there's no way that you can go around anywhere and not know that life is uh, is completely changed. It's amazing the difference it makes uh, when you see everyone in a mask. It, it, there's no getting around it. There's no forgetting it, which is good, I think. Uh, but, you know, from conversations that I've had with with people in Sydney and, and elsewhere in the country, but particularly Sydney, uh, there has been, oh, I feel like I've heard about a, a sense of a bit of that, I don't know, untouchability. It's not going to happen to me. This is somebody else's problem. Uh, we've dealt with it. We've done it. And I guess also from from customers, just as you said, you know, everyone was so excited to get back into restaurants. Perhaps they were a bit overexcited. Um, New South Wales and Sydney especially, they need to wake up. You know, as much as I love having the people back in the restaurant, we've had, we've, we've had some tables in that have just been an absolute nightmare for us, uh, you know, which just sends your anxiety levels and your stress levels through the roof when you, you know, you look across the room and – 
and they're hugging and they're kissing. But it's not so much that. It's the conversations that you hear. Oh, my God, I haven't seen you in so long. And what have you been up to? It's been months and so so on and so forth. You know, in my head, one, you haven't spoken to the person for ages, right? So health-wise, you don't know how they're they're tracking. Two, you haven't seen them in ages. And yet you're still willing to throw yourself at them and hug and kiss and it just starts to make you nervous, but it's not just me. I look across the dining room and I'm a pretty observant guy. I pick up on body language really quickly and you see other diners kind of in shock. Um, and, uh, you know, you can see them get a little bit tense by that sort of behavior as well. Um, but I think, yeah, I think we have been very relaxed about it. There's a lot of venues that aren't doing the right thing. I see it day in and day out. Um, you know, cafes that I've seen uh, really just jamming them in, and especially uh, in, in areas where we've had some we've had some clusters. You know, I've driven through, and it just seems like they're not paying attention, um, which is disappointing. You know, and we're doing everything legit, uh, and I know that many restaurants are, uh, and keeping you know a strict log, sanitizers everywhere, doing everything by the letter of the law to keep everybody safe um, because to be honest, a 14-day lockdown and a deep clean will hurt me more than, you know, a, a, a government-sanctioned lockdown for six weeks because at least you can do takeaway, you know, um, when you're locked down. At least you can sign and generate some other income but when you're locked down completely and you're named in that in the media, that's my fear as well, you know, because – they're really going to town on some of these restaurants and really repeating the name of that restaurant over and over and over again. Um, and I see it very hard for that brand, especially to recover from that, uh, which is a bit sad. Yeah, I mean, that's a restaurateur's worst nightmare, right? To be, you know, the such and such cluster. It's, um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you hope that people will understand that, you know, it's not in the it's not it, yeah it's not the business it doesn't define the business you hope it won't define a business uh, but of course you definitely don't want to be the person that has to find out the hard way and I guess you know as well for you in your situation where you don't have staff on JobKeeper you've got that um, a workforce that's likely to just find the next job so then you've also got a very difficult rebuild if you are forced to to lock down hard. Oh, yeah, very much so. Very. Much. I mean, if I was to lose two of my key staff now, I'm done. Really, am. And that's how dependent I am on 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 the people that work with me. Um, you know, my, it's funny. I was thinking about you know the sort of person I was in the police, and when you ran a briefing at the beginning of a shift, our briefings used to be kind of more relaxed and bit you know about fun and about what's going to happen tonight and what's on the menu and, you know, just general chit-chat and, and a bit of a joke. The last couple of months now, it's really become like a police military briefing at the beginning, you know, everyone signing the register, everyone checking in, making sure everyone's well, everyone under, making sure they understand our COVID safe plan and just doing repeating it over and over and over again and, you know, um, I, I feel that hat back on again now, especially during service too, that the way I used to scan a room is different now to the way it used to be. I'm 
very suspicious and very cautious of everybody who works, walks through that door. And I hate it. I hate that feeling. It's, um, it doesn't feel right. It's so interesting because, you know, uh, as all these regulations have come out about how to be COVID safe and this idea that, you know, you need to control your customers in a very different way, a lot of restaurateurs have, you know, have said, oh, goodness me, like we're not the police, you know, we don't, we don't know how to, <laughs> we, don't, we don't know how to do this, you know, whether it's a regional business that now is asked to collect postcodes and all that sort of stuff from, from a, uh, to check that no one's from Melbourne. There's just a lot of extra layers of enforcement. But you actually were the police so and it's a it's a funny way that your um your skills have come back into play um it must feel really really weird it, it, you know and it does and it's not it's not um and it's not in a good way either it's but i mean we just i'm just extra cautious i just really am i've got a duty of care you know and that duty of care extends not only to uh, my staff and my family, but it extends to every person who walks through that door. Uh, I got into an argument with, with a gentleman the other night who wanted to come in and order some takeaway. Um, I've just put a blanket strict rule down. We don't let anyone through that door unless we know exactly who they are. We have a contact number for them um, and, and that's it. That's the rule. And this gentleman just refused to give a name and a number. He just wanted to order some takeaway and go. And I said, I'm doing this for your – he just would not understand that this is for, as much for you as it is for me because you've come in here and if, so, if we do have an infection in here tonight and you've been here, I want to be able to contact you. He just couldn't that, could not get that into his head. Um, and for that reason, we just said, I said, go elsewhere. You, know, you need to go elsewhere. We're not letting you in. That's simple as that. Um, but we, you know, with our takeout, we're doing everything online. That way, at least we have a real person, a real phone number, a real credit card linked to that, and that gives us gives us a trace. Um, all our diners before they arrive are required to text us um, the first name and mobile number of every guest on their list uh, that is attending that night. So all we do is check them off the guest list when they walk through the door. So the the experience when you arrive at Pazar is very much like you would have go into dine at a restaurant in the old days, you just go sit down, enjoy your meal. So we're not asking for people to check in when they get there. We check them in before. Oh, the old days. They were nice, weren't they? Oh, the, the good old <laughs> days. Um, so, Attila, <laughs> just um, thinking again to your role as a, a builder of community and I guess a lot of what police officers do uh, is – to look at different sectors of the community that are doing it tough and to try to create connections and meaningful pathways for people. And I know that you do that as an employer and as a restaurateur, you, you create that sense of community. Obviously, community is, is uh, very stretched, very different, and things are not going to be easy for so many people for, for some years as we um, counter the economic impacts of the pandemic, let alone the, the health impacts. What can you... Um, see happening to communities in your area and I guess throughout our society, what, what are some of the, the fault lines that you can see and what are some of the ways that we can all help one another to, um, to create a better society on the other side of this? Wow, that's a, that's a, really, that's a really tough um, question to answer. Look, I, I mean, I can only go for my own observations of what I see um, around the area, area. Um, and we, you know, where we are in Canterbury is made up of some very diverse 
different um, cultural backgrounds. We have a huge Chinese community, Korean community. Um, we have a, a massive Lebanese, Greek. Um, I do see them as quite insular. Uh, they do very much stick to themselves. And, um, you know, so I, I do fear that we, we aren't building communities like we used to. There's no, I don't see the integration and the, and, and the mixing as much anymore, especially now with this pandemic. I'm, you know, there are certain shopping districts, districts and, and areas where there's a lot of um, you know, Chinese, for example, shops in one area and then a lot of Korean shops in one area. And you used to see a mix of all kind of races. And, and what I'm seeing now as I drive around, you know, I just can't. I'm very much a voyeur. I'm, you know, I, I used to say in the police, I'm, I'm a professional voyeur. That's what that's what I do, um, and I see that mix less and less uh, at the moment. And I think people are just maybe withdrawing and sticking, you know, to their own. I don't look at people that way. I look at uh, I look at us as look at us as all Australians and all, and all as one community. And, you know. And, all having to work together and support each other. And that's what I fear, that if we do start to withdraw into our own ethnicities and, 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 and areas and you know, support only those, then I fear we'll, we'll get um, too much division. Uh, how do we bring people together again? I, and, 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 and I think it's over food. I really do, I, I, and I, I, I think I'm seeing that more now because the restaurants have been shut and these eateries have been shut and we don't have those people visiting these areas to go and dine out and to eat um, and, and to experience these places. So um, that could be part of it, but I, I do really believe, and, you know, people say it, and it's not, it's not a cliche, food brings people together um, of all race, creed, and culture and colour. Um, I, I I fear that the the longer that restaurants are kind of made to look like the monsters of this pandemic or the spreaders of uh, of this thing, the 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 longer we're going to hurt. Um, especially when we were just starting to build confidence of diners and they were coming out again in their droves. That you, I can see now, just from my own restaurant, that people are losing confidence. Um, and that's just from, I've, you know, I'm, I don't just take a, a, a cancellation. I like to call them and, and find out why is, you know, is one, is it something we've done? Is it something that's maybe spreading through social media, um, about a place or an area? Um, uh, but mostly it's just been people just being scared to, to go out, especially group bookings. Um, you know, when we've got a group of eight, 10, 12, well, we can't have 12s at the moment, but you know, uh, when to, when couples start to drop off on those those groups, it starts to make other couples nervous. And discussions start, and I will maybe just cancel. We'll we'll do it again another day. Um, for many of the restaurants, and maybe even me, it might, there might not be another day. Um, <clears throat> that's the reality that uh, you've come to face. Well, let's assume that there is another day and I'm sure that there will be. And I, just the very idea of, of jumping on a plane with my carry-on and coming to a restaurant in Sydney seems absolutely outlandish but also <laughs> incredibly exciting and wonderful. So when I come, what are you going to feed me? Uh, well, it depends on when um, what the season is. I mean, we 
Pizarre has always been about the lamb. That's been our, our number one dish. The restaurant was built around it. The, the big wood fire oven was built specifically for doing the lamb and um, it's a style of of lamb done in Turkey. It's called a, a fırın kebab, which just translates to oven meat because um, kebab in, in Turkey is generally just meat. It's not meat on a stick um, always. But, uh, yeah, our slow roasted smoked lamb that goes in fresh in the morning every day and sits in there for about six to eight hours, depending. Um, that's our, our number one star dish. It's still our biggest seller. The smoked lubna, um, I could never take off the menu. We go through, um, oh, wait, we're still selling really well, about 40 to 60 to 70 kilos of that a week, depending on how, how busy we are. Um, that's a cold smoked lubna that we do with a apricot mustada at the moment. Um, oh, stop it. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> it sounds so good. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, you know, it's, we've got like there's probably six or seven dishes that will never come off the Pazar menu just because people would riot and um, get really upset. Uh, but, yeah, depending on the season, we've, we've got a very short menu. It's only generally 14 items on there. Um, and we rotate through and put some specials on depending on what's going on. But um, very much looking forward to the warmer weather. Yeah. Well, I'm really looking forward to being out the other side of everything and coming up there for some oven meat. So, Attila, in the meantime, I wish you all the best for getting through, uh, staying sane, happy, eating delicious things and feeding your community. Thanks so much for being part of the conversation on Dirty Linen. Thanks, Danny. And, uh, thanks, Rob. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. We spend a week thrashing around each issue, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This is a Deep in the Weeds production. <laughs>